consider how much of the time that Jesus spent in activities involving healing, I think we were supposed to notice that. And so that also feels to me as a Christian, as a physician, as a scientist, as a calling uh, to follow that model and to use everything at our disposal now to try to alleviate the terrible suffering that affects so many across the world. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Conversations with Nikki Gumbel. It's Shayla again. Today, we're sharing the full-length version of Nikki's conversation with Dr. Francis Collins from the Leadership Conference this past week. Nikki says it in the interview, but in case you don't know, Francis occupies arguably the largest medical position in the world today. As the director of the National Institutes of Health, Francis works with Dr. Anthony Fauci in the U.S. to respond to the COVID-19 crisis. In years previous, Francis led over 2,000 scientists in six different countries on the Human Genome Project and was the 2020 recipient of the Templeton Prize, a prize that's been given to influential figures like Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama. Francis is brilliant, humble, and winsome, and we are delighted to share this conversation with you. I'll hand it off to Nikki now. Thank you again so much for coming. This is such a privilege for us to have you and, and uh, you are the busiest man on the planet. I know that you are working a hundred hour weeks. I know that you get up at 4.30 uh, and you start your day reading the Bible. And uh, But but I know also that that hasn't always been the story of your life, that that um, in your earlier days, you were, you were not, uh, I think you, you even described yourself maybe as an atheist in, in your younger days. Are you happy to tell us, I know you've told this story many times, but, but it, 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 to me, it's the most extraordinary story and we'd love to hear just um, how, how, you ca- how your faith came alive. Uh, Nikki, I'd be glad to tell that story. And it's great to tell it to you and to have this conversation. I was raised in a home where faith wasn't considered relevant. Um, I grew up in a family that was very much into the life of the mind. Uh, my dad was a college professor. My mother is a playwright. Uh, lots of music around. Not much science. That came to me in high school. I went on to college and then to graduate school studying quantum mechanics uh, and uh, really had no use uh, for spiritual matters. In fact, kind of slipped from agnosticism to atheism by the time I was a graduate student. And then I had a change in my personal interests of what I wanted to do with my life and decided I wanted to be more involved in science that involved people. (laughs) That meant a big change in direction. And off I went to medical school. And I loved it. Uh, It was science, but it was about the human body and it had the potential of helping people who were suffering. And I wanted to be playing some role there, not because I think I had any particular calling, if you could call it that, but just sort of a desire to be useful. I continued to be, though, uh, one of those who tried to avoid the Christian medical students because I knew that they probably wanted to talk me into something I didn't want to hear about. But what happened in my life really was an experience as a third year medical student where now no longer was the study of the human body something in books. You were sitting at the bedside of wonderful people with terrible diseases and in the full knowledge that our medical system was not going to be able to save a lot of them. And that was troubling. And yet I found myself getting attached to some of my patients, particularly 
Uh, those who seemed to be suffering for nothing they had done to themselves, an elderly woman who was much like a grandmother figure, uh, I grew fond of, and I would send, uh, sit at her bedside sometimes as she was going through really awful chest pain from heart disease that our medicines really weren't working. And she would share her faith with me, which was puzzling and a little awkward because I really wasn't sure what she was talking about. And after one of those episodes, uh, she turned to me and said, you know, doctor, I've shared my faith with you and you're always listening, but you never say anything. <laughs> What do you believe, doctor? Wow. I realized in that moment, which is still just like burned into my brain, that I had no answer to that question. And she'd asked me the most important question any of us are ever asked in our life. What do you believe? Just four words. And I was suddenly intensely uncomfortable that I had pretty much skipped over any effort to try to see where I really stood on that question. I had slipped into atheism because it was kind of what I wanted the answer to be. I had uh, perhaps gone down this path of what Lewis calls willful blindness, avoiding looking at any of the evidence that might actually shed light on whether belief could be rational. And that woke me up. That day, I felt I can't really ignore the importance of assessing this question. I was supposed to be a scientist. I was supposed to be somebody who asks important questions and then looks at the evidence and doesn't just jump to conclusions. So determined uh, to see really why it is that believers believe, I began to investigate what the faiths uh, and their traditions had to offer. I was pretty confused at first. I tried to read the Bible. I didn't know what was going on. I probably started in the wrong places. But there was a pastor on my street uh, who I knew just for, as a neighbor, and I decided to ask him. And so I went into uh, his study and asked a whole lot of blasphemous questions about how it is that reasonable people could possibly believe in all this supernatural nonsense. And he listened patiently and said, well, you know, you may have a bit of a misunderstanding of what faith is all about, but I do get a sense, he said, that you're on a journey and you're not the first one uh, to go down this path who came at it from the perspective of rationality and science. And here's a book that you might want to look at. He took down from his shelf a little book and handed it to me and I took it home and opened it up and thought it had a funny title, Mere Christianity, mm. by, of course, C.S. Lewis. And in the first few pages, I realized all of my arguments against faith were falling to pieces. They were the arguments of a schoolboy. And this Oxford scholar, who had indeed traveled the same path from atheism to belief, felt like my brother, and he was going to helped me walk through those questions and even seemed to be able to anticipate my objections. That started me on a two-year journey, and it was a two-year journey with a lot of back and forth and, no, maybe I don't quite believe this one, and, oh, yeah, that one makes sense, and ultimately did discover that the great face of the world do have a lot in common, but there was some special characteristic that I needed, which was a way to understand not only how to see who God was, but how to reach out to God, how to have a connection with God and the person of Jesus Christ, 
emerged as the answer to that need. And over those two years, oh, kicking and screaming ultimately led me to the point of irresistibility where I simply could no longer say, I'm still trying to sort this out. Was I absolutely to the point of scientific proof of God's existence and of Jesus Christ as my savior? No, I don't think God gives us that kind of a gift, but it brought me to that point of saying, I'm ready to take the leap and on a Wonderful, sunny day in the northwest of the United States in uh, Cascades on a hike. I knew the time had come, and I gave my life to Christ. And that was 45 years ago. Wow. Now, everybody said, okay, Collins, it's really nice that you've become a believer, <laughs> but your head's going to explode because you're a geneticist. You're studying the things that are right in the middle of what many people consider to be an irreconcilable conflict between science and faith, studying genetics and DNA, and that's going to get you to evolution. And you know, there's just no way that's going to fit together. But here I am now, more than four decades later, and I have never in those 45 years, found a conflict between what I, as somebody who reads the Bible as a very seriously committed Christian and believes in its fundamental accuracy, and also what I know as a scientist, it just is critical when you're trying to sort out those potential conflicts to pay attention to what kind of question is being asked and what are the best ways that we have to answer it. So I want to reassure people if you are among many who have been led to believe that you got to make a choice between a scientific worldview and a spiritual worldview, I haven't had to make that choice for more than four decades. In fact, they coexist in my experience on a daily basis. And it's wonderful that way because they're complementary. They reinforce each other. They're adding harmony. They give you insights that neither one alone would allow. And you come away from that enriched, inspired. And without that, I think you're sort of impoverished if you don't get to take full advantage of both of the books that God gave us, uh, to use the metaphor of Francis Bacon, which I'm really fond of. God gave us the book of God's words, the Bible, which I read every morning. But God also gave us the book of God's works, which is nature, and that's what I get to do as a scientist, is to explore that as well and to see the awesome complexity and beauty of what God has given us adds to my faith. Science, in that sense, is a form of worship. Hmm. I think there are many of us now who feel that way, but maybe don't talk about it as much as we might. So, Nikki, I'm glad we can talk about it here today in this conversation and maybe reassure people who are afraid that if they become believers, they have to sacrifice uh, their scientific rigor. Not at all. Or if they become scientists, they have to walk away from faith. Not at all. Both of these approaches to truth can be intensely powerful, rewarding, and can exist in the same person in the same hour as they do in me right now. It's amazing uh, to hear you say that. And I, I, I watched your speech um, at, when you received the Templeton Prize. I mean, amazing that to 
you, I think you were the 50th recipient of the Templeton Prize. I think the first was Mother, Mother Teresa, and the list includes the Dalai Lama and um, Billy Graham and Desmond Tutu and uh, numerous other distinguished people. And, and you were, of course, a very worthy recipient of the 50th. But I loved your speech there because you talked about harmony. And yes. harmony is something that this world desperately needs right now. And you started with that, that harmony between science and faith. And um, I, I mean, you've seen so much in terms of science. I mean, I, I know that you you were the one who I uh, or led a team of scientists, no doubt, who identified the gene responsible for cystic fibrosis. And then, then you went on. And I mean, this just completely boggles my mind to lead a, a team of scientists that unraveled the human, all three billion, I mean, three billion letters of the, the human genome. Just explain to, to complete ignoramuses like me what that means and why that showed you something of the, just as you talk about these two books, this yeah. book of, of God's creation and what that showed you about God as you, you led that team of, was it 2000 scientists around the world or something that, uh, just about 2,400, indeed, wow. in six different countries, all laboring together uh, to read out this very first view of the Human DNA Instruction book, which for me as a believer was a glimpse of the elegance of God's creation and not just a purely scientific enterprise. Yeah, what an experience to be part of that team. All living things have a DNA Instruction book. We're included in that. And this is a sufficient amount of information biologically uh, to take a single cell, which we all once were, and develop this incredibly complicated, intricate, beautiful organism uh, called a human being, uh, which I think is fascinating scientifically. But of course, this is also the image of God that we have been granted through the process of creation. And in the ability to be able to read those letters, it did feel to me we were reading God's language. I am certainly convinced on the basis of everything we know about biology, about the relatedness of living things. I don't know how life actually got started. I don't think anybody quite does. But I do see in God's plan the ability to use God's natural laws over the course of long periods of time to result in an incredibly remarkable, big-brained creature called a human being that would have the interest uh, in searching uh, for answers, like, why am I here and is there a God? And all that falls together and makes total sense. And to be a scientist able to uncover a particularly important part of that, this DNA instruction book, uh, was indeed a gift, one that I'm still marveling at. Again, that brings me back to what a joy it is to be a scientist who's also a believer, so that when a discovery happens, it is not just a really cool moment uh, for the cleverness of science. It's also this moment of awe, because I think you can meet God in the laboratory just like in the cathedral. And that now that project um, uh, took 10, 10 years, I think, but you came in like, I, I think, very few projects in human history. To over two years early um, and 400 million below budget. I mean, that was an astonishing achievement in itself, but it has led to so many other things. I mean, I think like the, the value of it must be thousands of times worth more than, than was actually spent on it. 
Indeed, if one wants to sort of look at the return on investment, this is a pretty impressive experience in terms of all the things that has opened up. But for me as a physician, the fact that it's opened up all these opportunities uh, to find answers to diseases. Cancer has been totally revolutionized now uh, by our ability to look at exactly what's happening at the DNA inside that cancer cell for each individual patient. We can do that now and then optimize the approach to that cancer by picking amongst the variable therapies, the one that's the best fit for that individual's tumor. We couldn't do that before we had this ability to do DNA analysis at this kind of speed and scale. Likewise, so many mysteries that used to puzzle us uh, about problems that occurred early in childhood. Now, when you can read out the entire DNA script, you can often quickly figure out what the cause is and what to do about it. And we're even now getting to the point of being able to use this information for curative purposes. One of the first diseases I ever worked on as a researcher, sickle cell disease, has now had experiences, only a few so far, of people who've been cured of that genetic disorder by using the new genetic tools uh, called CRISPR that does gene editing and basically fixes the problem in the bone marrow of people with that terrible disease. This is an amazing time scientifically, and it feels also like a real answer to prayer and, and a gift from God that we have been given the ability through intellect and the tools of science to alleviate suffering in this way. And when you consider how much of the time that Jesus spent that we get to read about and activities involving healing, I think we were supposed to notice that. And so that also feels to me as a Christian, as a physician, as a scientist, as a calling uh, to follow that model and to use everything at our disposal now to try to alleviate the terrible suffering that affects so many across the world. And one of the things that fascinated me about um, your research was that how, how human beings, I, is, I, you'll know the figure, 99% uh, are in common between all human beings. Well, yes. It's more than that, isn't it? I, it's 99.9% uh, of us, uh, of our DNA is identical. And that could be true regardless of which pair of individuals you chose. We are one family. Uh, the Bible has been very clear about that. And science uh, now comes along and says, boy, got it right. We are, we are very much brothers and sisters across this planet. Let nobody try to say, oh, well, those other folks over there, they're biologically different from us. No, our, our relatedness as a species is truly dramatic. I love that. And I love, I, I love this book, uh, The Language of God. Uh, I know you've written several books, but this one uh, is a very well-thumbed copy on my bookshelf uh, because it's such a beautiful exposition of how science and faith and, uh, can be so complementary and work in harmony together. And I know that uh, shortly after you wrote that, I think you founded Biologos. And again, that's such an amazing thing. Can you say a little bit more about the why, why Biologos and what does it, it do? I know you are a founder and president, but uh, and of course now with your current role, you, you, you had to hand that on, but you're still very much, I think, uh, seen as the, the person behind it. Well, after the language of God came out, which I was not at all sure people would be that interested in. It turned out they were. <laughs> there had been 
<laughs> there hadn't been, I guess, a lot out there about how you could bring science and faith together in a harmonious way, especially science about life and biology. And oh my gosh, the word evolution had to be talked about. And that really scared a lot of people. And the book was an effort to show how you don't have to be afraid at all. You can see this as a celebration of God's creation and still be honorable uh, to the truth of the Bible. So a lot of people read the book and then started writing me messages, asking further questions, wanting to take this to the next level of discussion. And I thought, well, that could be interesting. But after the first thousand emails, I realized I'm not going to be able <laughs> to do justice to the importance of this conversation. We have a meeting place where people who are really wanting to dig deeper into the questions about science and faith can do so. And that was the justification for starting the BioLogos Foundation. Uh, BioLogos is a word I made up. It basically comes out of John first chapter. Uh, in the beginning was the word, the logos. But in this case, we're talking about life, which is bios. And how is it that God spoke life into being? Well, bios through logos. That foundation uh, was initiated in 2009, uh, just a month before uh, I was asked to come and be the director of the National Institutes of Health, reporting to the president. There are rules when you're a presidential appointee uh, that you may not have any other connections with any other organization. And so in somewhat of a heartbreaking moment, I had to step away from this foundation just as it was getting started. But I need not have worried because other remarkable leaders uh, came forward uh, to take charge of building this enterprise, now led by Dr. Deborah Harsma, who's an astrophysicist trained at MIT and is now the president of BioLogos, and a whole host of other remarkably thoughtful, deeply spiritual, scientifically rigorous folks. And it has become what I dreamed, uh, this meeting place for ideas to be exchanged Billions of people go to that website every year. They are now putting forward useful things like uh, educational programs for homeschoolers or, uh, or Christian high schools to try to be sure the science is right as well as the faith part. And it, uh, they run meetings where people come together and share. It has been a wonderful platform. It's allowed me to get to know a lot of people that I admired from afar and are now friends, people like Tom Wright or or, or Tim Keller, and, and that has been also just wonderfully enriching. So yeah, I think we have maybe over the course of the last 20 years gone from what seemed like a very contentious general situation between serious Christians and serious scientists uh, to a recognition that we can be serious together and have fun with it and actually enrich our lives and our faith and our science uh, by what we can learn from each other and seeing all of this as the truth that we have a chance to see uh, through God's grace. And you, you mentioned there in passing being, being uh, appointed the director of the National Institutes of Health um, by uh, President Barack Obama. And then, uh, of, of course, after that, uh, President Donald Trump uh, asked you to be to carry on. And now President um, Biden has asked you. And I think you're the first person ever to be uh, appointed for more than one administration, which is an astonishing achievement. But for those who might not know what the National Institutes of Health is, I mean, this is the biggest medical job in the world, isn't it? I mean, it's just absolutely massive. 
It is rather. So yes, the NIH is the United States way of supporting biomedical research by basically a budget now currently standing at $42 billion a year, which is the way in which research gets done in the academic institutions in the country and many outside the country that send their best ideas to NIH and they go through rigorous peer review. And then we fund the ones that appear to be most promising. And when you hear about breakthroughs in medical research that have happened in one of these institutions, it's probably because NIH supported it. And, and that is an incredible experience to oversee. Yes, astonishing. And particularly at this time, with perhaps yeah. one of the biggest challenges that our world has faced for 100 years with the pandemic. And you're heading all of that up. Um, and I think Dr. Fauci would report to you, wouldn't he, and um, everybody else. So, because I've noticed, because I've listened to one or two of your interviews, and so far every prediction you've made has come exactly true. You predicted when the vaccine would be out, and you predicted uh, that there would be vaccines. Um, so tell us, what's going to happen? How long is it going to last? Uh, when will, when will, uh, will it come to an end? Will it go on for years, or will it come to an end? What's going to happen? Well, I appreciate your calling my predictions accurate, but I don't know whether I can sustain that. There's so many unknowns here. Um, first of all, let's just say what an incredibly tragic year this has been, more than a year now, uh, for so many lives that have been lost. Just in the United States alone, more than 500,000 people have died and many others sickened. And we now have this problem that some of the people who got sick aren't really getting better. This long COVID that goes on for months after what should have been a self-limited illness is still very puzzling. And on top of that, all of the economic disasters that have fallen upon people whose lives have been so disrupted by this. So we as believers, I guess, find this as an occasion, uh, as, as Tom Wright has said, to really remember what it's like uh, to lament. And we should lament and we should grieve for what we have lost, but we should also reach out in every way we can uh, to help those who need that kind of help. And NIH's way of doing that is through science. We have done things in the last 15 months that I don't think have ever been done in quite this way. The development of vaccines, which started literally within 24 hours after the DNA information about this virus was first released, um, now leading to successful vaccines that are safe and highly effective in less than a year. And that compares with any previous vaccine development efforts where five years was thought to be pretty darn quick. And now we've done it in about 11 months. And that is a testimony to incredible ingenuity and hard work uh, of amazing teams that I've had the chance uh, to lead forward. And also a testimony to the fact that funds were made available uh, by uh, our U.S. Congress to enable us to do things and take risks uh, when we didn't know whether things were going to work or not. We've also worked hard to identify treatments for the people who are sick. We've made progress there, but we still have more to do in that regard. And this has been a 24-7, 100-hour-a-week kind of enterprise for most of us engaged in this space that has crowded out almost everything else in daily experience and caused me to spend almost all my time where you see me right now in my home office trying to manage uh, this enterprise. But God has been incredibly good in terms of answers to prayers. There was no reason really 
that we uh, could expect the vaccines to be as good as they are. I mean, they are better than Tony Fauci and I dared to hope for uh, six months ago. And when the data came out, I could not help but uh, feel incredible gratitude and a flood of tears just because you didn't almost have a reason to think it could be this successful. Mm. Obviously, we've got Still a huge challenge ahead of us. Uh, we have these variants that are emerging that appear to be more infectious and more dangerous. And we have to try to get ahead of those by getting people vaccinated as quickly as possible. And it's the whole world we're talking about. And while countries like the US and the UK are, are far along in terms of getting the vaccinations into arms, a lot of the rest of the world is just getting started. And for us, as people who are believers in altruism and the need to love your neighbor, that means all our neighbors. And we have a long way to go uh, to actually reach out uh, to all of those places where help is needed and make sure it happens. And I'm now spending a lot of my time trying to figure out how we can accelerate uh, the development of vaccines uh, for low and middle income countries in places like Africa and South America, where there's still much help needed. But we are making progress. I heard you say something like if there was 75 to 80 percent um, vaccinated or, or having some kind of immunity, that might lead to the R coming below one and it then coming down quite quickly. Is, is that right? It's about that. I don't think anybody exactly knows what the magic number is, but somewhere around 75 to 80 percent is enough to grant what's commonly called herd immunity, a term I don't care for because it makes it sound like we're all livestock. Uh, but let's just call it a blanket protection of immunity that can be provided. Because at that point, the virus starts to lose out. It doesn't have enough vulnerable people to keep going. And then we win and the virus loses. But that's a pretty high bar to get to. Uh, we are going to push as hard as we can in that space. In the U.S., it's particularly challenging because there's substantial numbers of people who say they don't want the vaccine. They're suspicious of it. They're not convinced that it's safe or effective or it's been all tied up in our incredibly polarized politics uh, to make it this strange outcome where your interest in the vaccine is driven by your political party, which never should have been a factor, but there you go. So we still have some work to do there uh, to try to overcome that kind of resistance if we're going to get us to where we need to be. And that really is one of those circumstances where the possibility of saving lives falls on all of our shoulders, even if you're not actually doing this for yourself, you're doing it for your community to try to drive the virus out. And that means all of us together uh, working to make that so. Now, I know that um, uh, during this time that, that you, you start your day, and I think you say you've been reading the Psalms and uh, particularly Psalm, I've heard you mention Psalm 46, which I happened to read this morning. Um, uh, and um, just say why that means so much to you. Well, I have struggled, as all of us have, over this worst pandemic in 103 years, uh, trying to understand how, as a believer in God's love and grace, uh, we should get our heads around all of this. And yet, as I read through the words in the Bible, I certainly see that this experience of suffering is not a recent development. This is common to all uh, humans across all ages. 
And certainly you can look back and see how many other plagues have preceded this one. If you want to go back a few centuries, some of them much worse than this. And so it's comforting to me to read through the Bible and see how God has been a solution uh, in those circumstances, not by a magical wiping it away, but providing the kind of support that we all need to get through this. And Psalm 46 is a wonderful example of that. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. We're in trouble, (laughs) planet Earth, uh, from this uh, dreadful coronavirus, and yet we can claim uh, that that psalm speaks the truth. God is our refuge and strength. And that's certainly been how I have felt when things are going particularly in a dark direction, uh, to be in prayer uh, in the morning, looking through God's words, that gives me the courage to say, okay, maybe yesterday uh, was a day where we lost ground. Uh, we're going to pick ourselves up and see what we can do today and um, pray that God will, will bless that effort in a fashion that will help us and help us save lives. I got to tell you, Nikki, I've been in a lot of challenging, um, stressful circumstances as a scientist. Goodness, trying to read out all those letters of the human genome when there was a competitive commercial effort that wanted to basically turn the whole thing into a commodity. That was pretty stressful. But you still didn't feel like if you made a mistake or you lost a week of progress uh, that lives were going to be affected. With COVID-19, you feel that way every day, that every decision has within it uh, the potential for saving or not saving lives. So I need God's comfort, and I need to feel that refuge and that strength at those times. And I need to believe that, as Joshua says, uh, to be strong and courageous (laughs) and not to slip into a, a a perspective of fear. Uh, So the Bible helps me a lot in that space. I'm glad I have that absolute rock to stand on. Well, speaking for myself, I mean, you've helped me so much. You've helped me both in in, in understanding how science and faith can come together in the way that that you you lay out so beautifully in the language of God. Uh, But also, uh, it's an enormous encouragement to me to know that at the head of all this, is a man of faith and a man who who completed the human genome project two years ahead of schedule and 400 million pounds below and dollars rather below below budget it shows you you are omnicompetent as well as a man who is um you know you're you're praying and you're and you're acting and i think speaking for myself i'm just so grateful to you and so grateful to you for doing this uh this interview um one final final question Uh, Are you hopeful for the world? I am hopeful, Nikki. I do believe, despite all of our troubles, uh, our unfortunate tendencies uh, to figure out uh, how to draw lines between groups and have an us versus them attitude, which seems particularly prominent right now, do believe that underneath it all, uh, we basically are creatures who have a sense of what's right and what's wrong, and we want to do the right thing. This moral law, which I see as one glimpse of the fact that we are connected to a holy God, is still there. It's not going away. If we can but set aside some of the other noise that's around us and focus on the things that really matter, I believe we do have 
potential uh, of a future uh, that will be caring for each other, uh, loving each other, making progress in a way that honors God's creation and doesn't further destroy it. But we have a lot of work to do uh, to get there. And uh, we have to do that together. In that regard, I got to say before we close, Nikki, what Alpha is doing has been such an incredible gift uh, to our hurting world. I don't see how we are going to have a future if it's a world where science has to triumph and faith has to lose out. And frankly, I don't think it's going to be a good world if faith triumphs and science loses out. Both both of these worldviews have so much to offer, and they can work together in harmony. Alpha has done a wonderful job to reach out to those who are curious and help them see the joy that can come uh, from recognizing who we are and who God is and how to put that together in a life that can be uh, joyful, productive, meaningful, and full of love. And thank you for that, because that's what Alpha has done for so many, and I hope will continue to do so for decades to come. Wow, that means so much to us to hear you say that. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so, so much for your time um, and um, your astonishingly wise and fascinating answers. Well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from the brilliant and humble Dr. Francis Collins. I don't know about you, but I took a lot of notes listening to that interview. He is remarkable. Now for our next episode, we're sharing another conversation from this year's leadership conference. Our upcoming episode will be the full version of Nikki's interview with Heidi Kwa. Heidi is a fabulous young leader. She founded Refuge for the Refugee at the age of 18, and in the eight years since then, she's impacted hundreds of thousands of people and has received incredibly prestigious awards for her work. As a 40-something-year-old woman, I look up to the 26-year-old Heidi Kwa. We're excited to share that conversation with you. Well, that's all from me. As always, don't forget to like, subscribe, or share this conversation with someone who might be interested. And we'll see you in two weeks' time for Nikki's conversation with Heidi. Bye.